All right, well, good morning. I got to tell you, I love the last song that we sang. I liked all the other ones too, but I really love that last song. I was thinking, man, if we sang that like every Sunday for a year, I'd want to keep going. Um, and I love what it says. The church will arise with power and love, and then what will happen? Our cities will know the glory of God. What's it going to take for that to happen? Because that's what I want to see happen, and I don't think I'm alone. So what will that require? As Ryan said, today we're going to begin a study of the book of Isaiah. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know that it is one of the longest books in the Bible. It is 66 chapters long, and so right now you might be a little bit panicked. You know, you're thinking, oh my goodness, if we make our way verse by verse through 66 chapters, we're going to be studying this for five years. Or maybe if you really like Isaiah, you're hoping that that's what we're going to do. It's not actually what we're going to do. What we're going to do is study it for the next 10 weeks, and we're going to go verse by verse through some of the most significant chapters. The book is written by a man, what's his name? Yeah, you can shout it out with confidence. That's not a trick question, right? I mean, if when you know it, you just, just go with it, all right? I won't ask you anything, you know, tricky. Isaiah, but who is this guy? He is part of the aristocracy of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel divided into two. You have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, that's Judah, includes Jerusalem, and he is part of the aristocracy of that particular country of Judah. He is likely a part of the royal family. Like, it's thought that Uzziah the king that we're going to see and talk about today was maybe his uncle. Kind of cool when the king is your uncle. When he dies, it's a little less cool, but, but it's amazing. He's phenomenally gifted, this man. What a great poet this guy is. He lived, he wrote, he served, he taught over the course, don't miss this, of 40 years, anywhere between 700 and 740 years before Jesus Christ was born and entered into the world as our Lord and Savior. And yet, this guy speaks so clearly of Christ, and we'll see that as we move through this. It's miraculous. There's no explanation for it apart from the fact that he's inspired, meaning that the Spirit of God wrote this book through him. And yet, notwithstanding the fact that he had a 40-year ministry, he had all of this talent, he had all of this kind of, you know, political power and all of this stuff, this guy's ministry, in his own day, bore almost no fruit at all. Like, it had almost zero effect on anyone. In fact, at the end of the 40 years, okay, instead of throwing him like a, you know, retirement party and presenting him with a gold watch and a key to the city and sending him off with a nice plaque that he can hang on his bedroom wall, you know, and saying, hey, man, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You've served us faithfully for 40 years. Wow, what spiritual direction you gave to us. An incredible book. This, this book, this thing is amazing. Like his ministry came to an end when Manasseh, who was then the king of Judah, and he was an evil, awful king said, all right, we're going to silence Isaiah. Here's how we're going to do it. Lots of options, but I choose cutting him in half. So let's lay him out on the table. I know he's my cousin or relative or great uncle or whatever, but get the saw out, boys, because we're going to cut him in two right about here. Wow. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That's how I'm hoping it does not end for me here, you know, like... Almost no effect, and yet he wrote one of the most beautiful books in the Bible, without question, and one of the most relevant. What is Isaiah doing in this book? He is looking at the church in his day, the people of God in his day, and he's realizing that they are an unmitigated disaster. He's like, oh my goodness, these people are spiritually bankrupt. Like these people, spiritually speaking, they think 
They're good because they're doing all of the religious activity, but the reality is they're doing all the religious activity in a completely self-serving, insincere way. In other words, they're going to church and they're singing the songs and they're giving to this and they're going to that and they're supporting this and, you know, all of these different things. They're doing their personal worship, all the stuff that we just talked about. Like, they're doing all of this in order to kind of collect chips from God, at least this is how they're processing it subconsciously. So that, you know, next Tuesday when they want their deal to close, they can go to God and go, hey, now listen, I kind of feel like you owe me because I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. And here are all the chips I gathered up this week and here's how I want my life to go. I'm pushing them all into the center of the table. I want you to close the deal. I want you to heal this person. I want you to do this, do that, my kids, my marriage, my health, whatever. Like, who is that? Like, what God is that? God's a concept. That's not God. That's not the real God. Isaiah is looking at his church in his day, and he's going, man, we are spiritually lifeless, and we are missionally ineffective. Not getting anything done. He's devastated. He's like crying out to God, going, how can these people, Lord, your people, who themselves live in darkness, lead other people to light? How can these people, your people, God, who themselves, okay, are dead, lead other people into life. How can these people who are far from God, and it's worse than that, Lord, because they're blinded to the reality that they're far from God. So they're going through the motions. They think they're close. So how can these people who are not only far from you, but blind to the reality that they're far from you, lead the rest of the world to draw near to you? Because that's their mission. And it's our mission. How can we do this? I mean... What is the deal? How are those people going to do that? So that's the question that he's asking with this book. It's the question he answers with the whole of this book, but it's also the question that he experiences the answer to in his own heart and life, much to his surprise, in chapter 6 of this book right at the beginning. So Isaiah, if you're familiar with the book, spends the first five chapters just going after God's people. Like, I read all five chapters, and I like I made a list. So he comes to the people of God, his church in his day, and he's like, okay, so let me tell you what your problem is, all right? So here's the deal. You've left God. You have corrupt leadership. You're liars and thieves. You trust in money and possessions and political power. You are so unbelievably proud. You oppress the poor. You take advantage of the weak. You're ungrateful, wild drunkards and partiers. You're unjust. You're deceitful. You call evil good and good evil and celebrate that nonsense. And when you worship the Lord, you're doing it in a completely self-serving fashion, even though you don't process that consciously, which is actually worse. So now you understand why they cut him in half. The only question is, why'd they wait 40 years? Like, get canceled a lot quicker today. He ends those chapters in chapter 5 with six prophetic woes. And not like, whoa, but like, woe to you. It's a curse. He says, woe to you. He's saying to the people of God, woe to you for this, and woe to you for this, and woe to you for this. You think I'm done? No, no. I got three more. Woe to you for this. Hey, hey, here we go. Woe to you for this. Don't miss it. Woe to you for this. He gets to chapter six, which is where we're going. He sees God, and he says, woe to me. Oh, my goodness. Everything changes. It's the great leveler seeing God. All of a sudden, he's not comparing himself with these people. He's comparing himself with God. And when he compares himself with God, he realizes that the distance there, which is infinite, is a lot greater than the distance 
between him and these people. In fact, the distance between him and these people goes away entirely. He's like, oh my goodness, I have been woeing you guys. I mean, I've been letting you have it. And the reality is I come into the presence of God and I am going to proclaim a prophetic curse upon myself. Woe to me. And God comes to us in those moments. He brings healing. He brings forgiveness. He brings restoration. And he commissions us from a very different place, not a place of it's all about me, but from a place of it's all about him. What Isaiah realizes is, man, you know what these people, for these people to get from here to here, what they need to experience is really what I, Isaiah, have experienced in the presence of God. In other words, the cure for our spiritual ineptitude And our missional ineffectiveness is an experience. It is an encounter with the living God. And so what he does is he writes his encounter with the living God in such a way as to employ all of the senses of us as human beings. We hear it. We see it. We feel it. We smell it. There's incense. There's smoke rising. There's all of these different aspects of this. And the reason that he writes it so carefully and with such detailing and so graphically is that he's going, oh, Lord, here's what I want you to do with this. I want you in future generations, because obviously it ain't getting done in mine. I want you to awaken God's people to the reality of who God is, because when they see God, they can't treat him the way, they're gonna, or the way they've been treating him. He's not going to be a concept anymore. He's going to be not just a reality, but the ultimate reality. So Isaiah begins with this. He says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So what is he doing? He's saying, okay, so I saw the Lord. When did you see him? In the year that King Uzziah died. And he's just not marking the date. He's also saying, look, there was stuff going on that all of these people would have understood who originally read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, it was a year of great tumult. It was a year of great uncertainty. Like it was crisis management stuff at the highest level when this king died. This king, Uzziah, was arguably the greatest king since King Solomon. He reigned for 52 years. He was the only king probably that Isaiah had ever known in his lifetime and that most of the people of Judah had ever known in their lifetime. And he was a good king. He was wise, he was a brilliant military strategist, he strengthened the borders, he expanded the territories, the economy was just crushing it under Uzziah, like Uzziah was the man, and toward the end of his life and toward the end of his reign, the Assyrian Empire was on the rise, and not only was it on the rise, it was looking to the southwest. It's up here in the northeast, and it's looking down toward Judah, and here's its design, and everybody understood what the plan was. The plan was the Assyrians are going to sweep down. They're just going to capture everything and everyone. They're going to take Israel, they're going to take Judah, and then they're going to go down into Egypt, and then they're going to take Egypt. That's the goal. Capture everything along the way. And the Assyrians were brutal, awful people. Like, they would show up at your city, they would surround your city, they would say, okay, so here are our terms, total surrender. We take everything and everyone. We deport you wherever it is that we want to send you. Uh, Your women are our women. All of your riches are ours now. Like, here's what we're demanding of you. You can either take that or option B, door number two, 
Uh, You can refuse to take that, at which point we are going to be unrelenting until we capture you. And when we capture you, we're going to cut the heads off of every person in this city, and we're going to pile them up in large pyramid-style piles to send a message to the rest of the world that you can either surrender or become part of a pyramid like this. Not kidding. So it's sort of like, man, they're turning their gaze in our direction If ever we needed great King Uzziah, it's now. And that's when he failed them, Uzziah. Uzziah grew proud in all of his wealth and all of his prosperity and all of his riches and all of the praise. He became so prideful, he went into the temple of the Lord and he did something that he was not allowed to do. Like he entered into an area that he's not allowed to go and he takes up the incense altar. Like he's going to offer incense to the Lord on the incense altar that stands at the doorway to the most holy place in the temple of God. Eighty of the priests come in and they're like, please don't do this like king. Like, be great somewhere else. Like, this is a bad idea. Like, don't do it. He's like, no, no, I'm going to do it. And in that moment, God struck him with leprosy on his forehead. Leprosy, incurable in that day, thought to be highly contagious. It wasn't, but in the Bible, if you're familiar with leprosy, it's, it makes you unclean, like it makes you unfit to even be in the temple of God. So they like grab him, they usher him out, and then he is quarantined minus electronics for the rest of his life. Think about that. There's no Netflix, there's nothing. His son Jotham takes over. He reigns for like a year before he is ousted by his brother and a whole faction of people who are in favor of the Assyrians. Like, let's figure out a way to make peace with these folks before you get the, I mean, political turmoil. And in the meantime, he's relegated to advising by, I don't know, maybe passing notes under his door or something. You know, Jotham's like, well, I got this problem. And he's like, slide it under. Dad's like, okay, here's the answer. Slide it under. Jotham's like, I can't even touch that, but I can read it from here. Gone. But it's worse than that. Because right about that moment, in fact, if you read the historian Josephus, the first century historian, writes brilliantly on the antiquities of the Jews. He says that at the moment that God struck him with leprosy, he struck the entire land. And by the whole land, I mean Israel, I mean Judah, I mean Syria, I mean modern-day Lebanon, which is where the epicenter was, with a mega, mega earthquake huge earthquake that devastates the whole region. Archaeologists have dug down, and no matter like what city you go to in all of these you know, different parts of this area, at the same layer, at the same level that corresponds with this date, okay, there is utter devastation. They estimate that that earthquake was an 8.2 on the Richter scale. Think about that. Go look that up today. Like 8.2, is that strong? No, no, no. It's crazy strong. It is said to have been the strongest earthquake along the Dead Sea Transform fault line in the last 4,000 years. It is likely to have killed well over 300,000 people. So when you take a look at what other earthquakes at that same fault line, so the same deal, lesser in intensity, killed, however, in antiquity. There's one, for example, that wiped out 255,000 people. Okay, so what did the mega quake do? And by the way, it's referred to twice in the Bible, once by a man who lived through it, and another time by a man who lived 250 years after it occurred. And it is referred to in both cases as a the 
earthquake. Now, why is that striking? Because they get earthquakes all the time over there. It's like hurricanes here, you know? If a hurricane came and it was so devastating that universally today and 250 years from now, everybody referred to it as the hurricane, okay, now you're kind of getting a feel for this. The earthquake. So what do we have? We've got the Assyrians on the rise looking our way. That's not nice. I don't like that. We've got the great King Uzziah, the only one I've ever known. Good king. In a moment of pride, failing God and failing us, relegated to a room, passing notes under the door. His son Jotham, and it's really uncertain with him. I don't know how it's going to go with him. Family is fracturing in the royal family. Everybody now is nervous. You have this earthquake that is a mega quake, wiping out hundreds of thousands of people, leveling whole towns. How about that for the economy? And now, Uzziah can't even pass notes. He's done. He's dead. Isaiah's like, okay, so in the year that King Uzziah died, with all that happening, guys, that's when I saw the Lord. And where is he? Like, what is he doing? It says that he is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And then here's the description of the Lord. This is it, the whole description. He says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm sorry, but I find that disappointing. I do. I mean, look, the train of his robe was significant. The train of his robe was super important. It spoke of an ancient Near Eastern king's majesty. So when an ancient Near Eastern king, for example, would go and conquer another ancient Near Eastern king, he wouldn't just append the kingdom of that king to his own kingdom. He would cut off a part of that guy's robe and append that to his own robe. So the larger the robe the more kingdoms have been conquered. And what he's saying is that this is the king of all kings. Like, this is the Lord of all lords. This is the king of the universe. He has conquered every kingdom, including mine and yours. The only question is, are we going to give it to him, or is he going to have to take it? Are we going to look at him in a vision like this and go, oh my goodness, I have been dealing with you on a purely concept level, and honestly, when I analyze the way that we relate, this has been about me, which it is for all of us to some degree. It's just how we're wired. It's hard not to happen that way. But Lord, when I have seen you, I want you to have this. Like, please take this. Put this on your robe. You know, add this to your lands. Like, what can we do with this little bit to advance you? Because it's not about me. He's high and lifted up. I think that's a little odd, honestly. I do. I I think that, like, let's say, for example, that the President of the United States is somebody that nobody had ever seen. He's this guy. He's locked behind a door, you know? And then finally, somebody goes in and sees him and comes out. What do we all want to know? I mean, what did he say? You know, like, I get that. But what did he look like? Like, we don't even have a snapshot of this guy. Camera's not allowed in. What did he look like? I don't know. He's about six feet tall. He's like 78, you know, years old. He's going to be 79 next week because that's how fast they age in office. And then 80 the next week, and about a buck 75, you know, in weight, like gray hair. It's odd to me, but it's not odd in the Bible. There are these moments in the Bible where people see God, and they don't describe him. So the elders of Israel, they go into the presence of God. 
Exodus 24, go look it up when you get home. They walk away, what do they talk about? The blue pavement under his feet. Isaiah goes into the presence of God, sees him on his throne. What does he talk about? The robe that fills the room. John the Apostle goes into the throne room of God. Revelation 4, he's like, yeah, you know what? He's blazing with diamonds and rubies. Like, that's the color of it all, and that's about all I got. Like, what are these people suggesting? Because I promise if they met with any one of us, they'd be able to describe us just like we could describe them. Look, we could walk into the presence of the most intimidating person in the world, and we'd still be able to walk out going six foot, 175. You know, like, we could do it. I think what they're saying is that human language fails. It does not have the capacity to relate to somebody the appearance of the Lord properly. Like it just, at some point you just go, I don't know, man, this is, you got to see it yourself. Like I, words fail to do justice to the beauty of God. Is that who you came to worship today? Is that what you came with? Is that how you live? Is that who you sing to? Anyway, they talk about the pavement. They talk about the robe. John and Isaiah, as we'll see now, also talk about the angels that surround him. He says, above him stood the seraphim, which means literally burning one. So they're they're burning, they're fiery, and it speaks to the holiness, the otherness of God, the purity of God. Each had six wings, it says, with two he covered his face, unwilling to look upon the blazing glory of this great God and King. With two he covered his feet. It's really an image of of him taking two wings and enfolding them over his body and his lower parts in particular, unwilling to reveal his creatureliness, though he is perfect in the presence of this great God and King. And with two he flew, ever ready to carry out the commands of this King. And notice their cry, for it says that they called one to another continuously back and forth from one side of the room to the other. And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what does the proclamation of the holiness of God in this moment with Isaiah bring? Because this would not have been lost on him. It says in the foundations of the thresholds of the throne room of God shook like an earthquake. It shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was was being filled with smoke, which in the Bible is evidence of the presence of God. And what all of this does is is it comes together, it conspires together to create an earthquake in the heart and mind and soul and life of this man Isaiah. It changes him from thinking about God as a concept, somebody that he's coming to the temple to hopefully, you know, get him to kind of fix what's going on in the leadership of our country and, and Lord, help deliver our economy from this devastating earthquake and please do this and please do that and please do this. And look, he tells us to bring him our our requests, but you get the idea? I'm here kind of sort of, okay, I'm just going to be honest, for me, (laughs) he goes from concept to reality. And here's the difference. When God is just a concept for you and just... Survey yourself over this, okay? You admit God into your life on your terms. Hey, you know what? I'm going to accept you as long as you fit into my plans, my purposes, my mission, what I'd like to see happen. I mean, I think that you'd be handy, you know, and I don't want you to touch this, and I don't want you to go there, and I don't want you to ask about this, and this whole room over here, this is closed off to you. Don't enter. Do you see the sign, do not enter? Because, I mean, in reality, in this scenario, I'm the boss, and you're my personal assistant. I'm interested in this because I'm thinking you can advance 
me. All right, so let me ask you, does this God that Isaiah wants you to see, like he is describing it carefully, does this God sound like somebody who wants to be employed as your personal assistant? I'm going a hard no on that. You know, like, I mean, is God in heaven and he's calling the angels and he's going, listen, guys, I've applied to be Tom's personal assistant and I put you down as references, you know, and I'm kind of hoping that you guys will give me a good, you know, referral and because that's kind of, I'm a little nervous and I need the money and I'm, I want him to say yes and I'm eager to serve and I'm, he is a servant. But come on. It's ridiculous. And but it doesn't feel ridiculous until you see the Lord and then you go, oh, what am I doing? What in the world? And here's what else you see. When you enter into the presence of God and you see him, you then see you. And here's what you stop doing, comparing you to other people because all of a sudden that comparison, you realize that's not the one to make. God isn't going, hey, you know what? You're a lot better than these people, so I think I'd like a relationship with you. You compare yourself and you see yourself not in the mirror of someone else's life that makes you look good, but in the mirror of the life of God himself, which makes you look less good. Listen to what happens. Isaiah sees God and he says, I've been woeing the heck out of these people in my day. And woe now is turning on me. Verse, verse 5, he says, woe is me for I am lost. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, this is what has revealed this, have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What's with the lips? You have a sore on his lip. It's a virus probably, Right? A little food on the lip. Like, hey, man, you got to... The lips are connected to the heart, and the Bible makes that clear, and so does life. You know, you're driving home, when it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, the Scriptures say, yeah, just wait till somebody cuts you off out of your heart. Your mouth is going to speak, isn't it? Somebody irritates you, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Somebody makes you angry, out of the heart the mouth speaks. You love someone, out of the heart the mouth speaks. You come to praise your Lord out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's not wearisome, it's not redundant. I think about these angels in his presence, they're singing nonstop. You get to Revelation, you know, like 750 years later, they're still singing the same song. You're like, good grief. I think that would be monotonous. No, it wouldn't, actually. Not there. There's something about the presence of God and seeing him accurately, which changes all of that stuff. But anyway, I think the first way you know that you've moved from God being just a concept to you to being the ultimate reality for you is that you proclaim a woe upon yourself. Like you go, okay, so how I look compared to them, that's not even, forget that, that's a category that's gone now. I see myself as I am, Lord, in the mirror of you and woe to me. I'm, I'm lost. It's humbling to be in the presence of greatness. I think maybe I've said this in the past. I can't remember. But we've experienced this, a lot of us, on a very lesser scale, okay? You were like the great student, you know? Like you got 100% on everything you ever did from like the nursery all the way through high school. You went to Harvard. And then you were just mediocre, you know? <laughs> There you were just average, maybe. You were the great vocalist and the, the person in all the plays. And I mean, you were like a superstar in your school. And, and then you went to Broadway and you met 
like Dina Menzel, or you just watched her in a play and you just went home with your tail between your legs, like, oh my goodness, that's greatness. You were a great athlete, you get a Division I scholarship, you go and you show up with all these other great athletes, and you realize, you know, I was really good in my hometown. Isaiah is going, guys, try to comprehend how humbling it is to walk into the presence of the greatest being and infinitely so in the whole of the universe. Your agenda melts, disappears. Your, your plans and purposes, you're like, oh, I've, I'm sorry I even had them. Like I, Woe to me. I am lost. And what does the Lord do in response? I think this is kind of cool because Isaiah doesn't even ask to be forgiven. <laughs> he's, so, he's so overwhelmed. He's just like, I, I'm wrecked. That's it. It's over. And God responds to his confession in mercy. He doesn't beat him up. He doesn't go, yes, finally, that's why I brought you here. I mean, that's part of it. But it's not the end of it. We're moving somewhere. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar of sacrifice. It's a bloody coal. A perfect being has died to provide a covering by his perfect blood for all of our guilt. And who is that? Because Isaiah points to him 700, 750 years before he's even born. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An infinitely valuable life, therefore an infinitely valuable blood laid down in sacrifice that our guilt might be taken away. It says that with the bloody coal, he touched my mouth. And what does he say? He says, behold, this has touched your lips, which is an image of your heart. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And now that he's forgiven, God speaks. It's like now he's ready. He says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Which is the same question facing all of us. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, well, you know, can we talk about it a little bit? Like, there's some way that we can, why don't we get coffee and have a conversation? I don't know. You know, I got kind of some boundaries up here. I've got some things I'm committed to. I don't want to kind of foul up this and this and that and that and kind of wondering how invasive this is going to be. Frankly, as I analyze the situation and I sort of look at it from my perspective a little bit, I'm kind of, I got some questions, you know, like, how long is this going to take? Where am I going to have to go? How dangerous is it actually going to be? Is it going to be dangerous? What am I going to get paid? Are there health insurance benefits? Like, you make a matching contribution to my IRA. Like, it's all gone. It's melted. It's dissolved. It's, it's not even on his radar None of those considerations matter. That's a concept, God. This is the true and the living God. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. I don't need to know a thing. Don't care how long it's going to take. None of that matters. What do you want? Like, here, here, stitch this onto your robe. Let's just go. Let's do this thing. Like, here am I. Send me. Guys, Isaiah looks at the church of his day, and he's like, all right, so 
They're in darkness. How are they going to lead people to light? Like they're, they're chasing after death themselves. How are they going to help people find death? Like they're far away from God and they're just going through the motions. So they're blind to the fact that they're far away from God. And so how are they then going to lead people to God? And the answer is that they, that we need to have the same experience that he had. We need to reckon with the real God. And he, need to be, he needs to become for us a present, alive, powerful, beautiful, gracious, amazing, terrifying in some ways, <laughs> reality. We need to proclaim our ruin in his presence and receive his grace and then recognize, my goodness, my life matters to the degree only that I enfold it up into what he's doing. So cut a piece of my robe off, take my kingdom. I don't care what it involves. Like, here am I. Send me. That's the answer. And so I close with this. Have you realized that you're a sinner? And then I'm going to add, okay, and that Jesus has a blood powerful enough to forgive you no matter what you've done. That like he doesn't run to you, he flies. That running's not fast enough. It's like he's there. And have you confessed that before the Lord and just said, God, I, I'm, I'm going to stop comparing myself to these. I'm ruined. Please forgive me. Take me. That's the first thing. But the second is, are you willing to reorient your life around God? Because he is not signing up for the job of being my personal assistant or yours. He is Almighty God. We have the privilege of living for Him. And He's created us to do it, which means it is the most joyful, purposeful, meaningful thing that any of us can do. So think about that. Let me pray for you. Lord, we come to you today and we are grateful for your word which reveals you. Your word that also creates. You speak and it is. God, I pray that your spirit would meet with us in this moment, that he would reveal through the word of God, through this experience of Isaiah, who you really are and what you're really like. And in that mirror that we might see ourselves, not that we would be shamed, but that we would be forgiven and renewed. Lord, that we would know abundant life, which is life lived for you and eternal life, which is life found in you. Lord, come and disabuse us of all the lesser things in our lives that we worship, including our own selves. Remove our ego and make us like the the seraphim in this vision. Those who ever live to praise the Lord, who ever live to serve the Lord, who rightly reverence and love the Lord, can't get enough. God, do this, that we might be a part of a movement that does, in fact, bring light and life to our city, that, that, Lord, we might be those who lead people to be near to you. So draw near and do the work in our heart that needs to be done, even as you did with Isaiah, and heal us, even as you did with Isaiah, and then repurpose and send us out, even as you did with Isaiah. Do these things, we ask, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.